When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan and I'm your host for this series. Let me uh, begin by saying we're continuing with our discussions of the Bronze Age era and today we're going to talk about a few specific instances and things that were found from an archaeological perspective while we're doing the Bronze Age and of course as we go into the Iron Age we won't, as I've said before, have a lot of history to work from. There's no written record at this point so we're almost purely reliant upon uh, the wealth of material we've been able to find via archaeology. That's not a bad thing, though, to be fair, because there is some great stuff, especially recently, that have come about, which we are very, very blessed to have uh, a hold of. And I think we're benefiting from the way it's showing us the way the world worked in Britain at this point in time. Uh, going to go outside of Wales for an example here today, just simply because it's so important to the Bronze Age discoveries that we've had. We'll talk a little bit about a number of different things, but how about we get to it? First of all, let's start talking about the Bronze Age more from the actual tools that they're using rather than the process of making bronze. Uh, one of the main things that's used for is to create, well, obviously farm implements, be it axes. We found tons of axes in the Bronze Age. There's obviously equipment for agriculture and digging pits. And also importantly, this is probably the first time we find evidence of actual proper weapons, uh, not just like bow and arrow type ideas or things that could be could be weapons, but they might not be. There is swords, and we find them in the Bronze Age for the first time in Britain. And the ones that we find the most of, I think, are in Scotland, but they have been found in other places. And certainly, I think we will find them everywhere. The reality of it is there's a couple of factors to this, and, and one of the factors is a climactic factor. Uh, we have an incident where in the 1400s, the weather starts to get colder. This forces people to move because, I mean, unpleasant weather means lousy growing season means animals dying means starvation means, means, means. And so people being the people that they are realize they must move out of the mountain ranges and back into the valleys and back into the lowlands where the weather is more uh, pleasant or less inclement. And that way they can continue with their lives. The only problem with this is, of course, is this shift of what I would call climactic refugees creates a problem for the people that already live in the valleys because they're there having their life and all of a sudden these other people come on board and maybe they're your family, maybe they're not. Maybe they're the local community, maybe they're not. And suddenly you have friction, you have confusion, you have warfare, you have 
problems of all sorts. And so this creates competition. And this competition will obviously create battles, it'll create bloodshed, it'll create prisoners. It creates a whole host of interesting problems that will come into this and, and will start to reach this. And, and last week we talked a little bit about hill, hill forts. Uh, hill forts become sort of the way to live around this time and carry forward into the Iron Age, in part because, as I said last week, the defensible nature of them, but also because they become an easy way to keep your community together. Uh, you can actually contain all of your animals in there. You could even put, you know, some basic farm related growing in there uh all your houses could be in there and sometimes they're protected by an earth bank sometimes they're protected by ditches and a lot of times there are also been evidence of poles and wood that's been put into sort of bulk up protection and they get more complicated the closer we get to the roman period because of course people are thinking of ways of defending themselves and so Obviously, as they have to make more preparations to prepare and protect themselves, the whole procession gets that much more complicated. Um, the other derivative of all this is, and, and we have evidence of this, at least in the later Iron Age, is that slaves get taken. Probably, and this is only a supposition, there's no, there's no evidence, full-on evidence of this. But the likelihood is, is that this comes out of uh, battles, out of prisoners of war, out of taking communities. This happens a lot in the Middle East. You know, uh, if there's an invasion by one major empire into another, they'll capture citizens and drag them back into their own uh, population, use them as slaves, use them as sex slaves, all sorts of different things to sort of basically use that population up. But more importantly, also to give a level of luxury to the population that's currently there because of course slavery becomes a very cheap form of labor i mean it's the cheapest form in the fact that you're not actually paying for anything but even in this time you're still you still have to feed them so it's not a completely free service but the thing of it is you're you're concerned for their welfare is a whole lot less let's be honest slaves are not treated well that's part of the joy of being a slave the other thing is you get the really really crappy jobs the awful stuff that nobody else wants to do. Hey, slave, guess what you get to do? You get to go into the mine and dig into a little tiny hole where you can barely breathe with maybe no light and chip away at a rock for 8 to 10 hours a day. And then we bring you out, maybe feed you, maybe not. Wash, maybe, maybe not. A proper bed, probably not. Then you get to go back and do it all again the next day. And, you know, that... That's kind of the lifestyle they would be leading. It would not be a fun one. But what this does, by creating this level of slavery, in all likelihood what happens is it also helps to create a stratification in society. Because now, the more slaves you have, the more wealth you acquire. So now it becomes in your interest to capture more slaves. So there's probably even more battles and more confrontations and more prisoners and more slavery of various types because now it's an economic benefit to you so again this is something we've seen in other situations and in other civilizations throughout the bronze iron and into our modern age this goes on so as this is happening 
as I said, it creates a stratification. The other thing that's going on is there's also a development, which has happened probably a few hundred years before in the Middle East. Again, things are coming from the other parts of the world to Britain at this point. And one of the things that develops is the cart and a wheeled cart at that. And so now all of a sudden you can stack things in a major amount into a cart. You can get an animal strapped to the cart. The other thing that we find at the beginning of 1000 BCE, largely in Britain, the horse has been domesticated and is now being used to move the carts along with the cattle uh, and oxen. Another thing for the Welsh population, of course, is that in a lot of Wales, they are predominantly just into animal husbandry. There is a lot less agriculture. Um, the reason for this, the evidence that we have, is found in the iron or in the hill forts, both in the late bronze and early and late Iron Age. There's a whole lot more consumption of animals than there is consumption of agriculture, simply because the storage facilities are not that big by comparison. And the amount of animals being eaten is quite large. So there also, I would argue, shows that there's been a change in climate where the agricultural side isn't quite as useful as it used to be. Now, as this happens, of course, like I said, you have these confrontations. But the other part is you have a stratification of, of society. And so one of the things that's come of that is a couple of archaeological finds that, that have happened. And one happened a long time ago. The other one happened relatively recently, and I think we'll talk about the recent one first. Uh, in Amesbury in Wiltshire, there is, was a individual who was found, actually was found, I believe there was two individuals, but there was one who was supremely better decked out than the other, um, found in 2002. They were identified to be from the Bronze Age, and even though they were built, they were actually right near a Romano-British burial ground, which is an interesting thing as well. So... Here you have this combination of this Bronze Age burial along with a Romano-British one. You've got to think that there's a reason why those two are associated with each other, but who knows, right? It could be a complete accident as well. But unlikely, typically, you'd think that these kind of grounds, the reason why they get reused is because there's a sense of ritualization of that for whatever reason, right? Same reason why we build on why most cemeteries initially were built in church yards because of the desire to build them near there in the Christian period and all of that that comes of that. Now, this person that was found was in their 30s or late or early 40s. Uh, they were buried in a style which becomes very popular in the Bronze Age, which is to be buried in the fetal position. Uh, this particular person was actually uh, encased in a wooden coffin kind of thing, um, which is interesting and different than some of the other British burials that go on in this period. We'll talk about a couple of others, but, but to focus in on this, one of the things that was found with him was a massive amount of metal and the form of arrowheads in the form of uh, things that could produce uh, bronze uh, smelting. And as well, he was found with a layer of wealth and a layer that has been not found in any uh, burial site so far that we've found in the Bronze Age in Britain. So he's a massive find for the archaeological community. They're just getting to grips with all the, the details. I mean, some of the stuff evidence that I found is as recent as five to ten years ago. 
So they're still trying to understand. There were some associations with the idea that because Amesbury is not that far away from Stonehenge, that he has something to do with Stonehenge, possibly. Stonehenge at this point is now a completed structure when he is found. The mid uh, 2000, 1000 BCE, so like about 1500 BCE, which is close to when he's found. Now, the difference is, is that with Stonehenge at this point, we've come to the blue stones. It's gone from being earth ditch to wooden posts to stones. And <clears throat> in fact, there is an argument that they, that's contested by at least one archeologist. I found that the stones, uh, which I think the majority of archeologists believe were actually brought from Wales. So these stones that make up Stonehenge are blue stones. They're found in Wales, they were probably quarried in Wales and brought either by ship or by rolling to this part of Wiltshire. And that's the reason they're there. Why are the blue stones of Wales so important? Why are they such a religious monument? Unfortunately, we just don't know. We, we don't understand why they were so critical to be there. We also don't fully understand the reasons for that structure, as I've talked about a couple of episodes ago. It just is very important for some strange reason. Now, one of the things I do know is that Stonehenge is built on a type of a rise where it is seen from a fair distance. So it, and in some cases can be seen by hill forts that were relatively close. So there may be, that may be one of the reasons. So it's sort of a temple like structure within the distance of a few communities. There is also evidence that there was a wooden hinge not very far away. And the argument goes, and I think I've said this as well, that the wooden hinge would be for the living, where the living would go to celebrate life, to have their uh, life ceremonies, to do things like, you know, when a birth has happened, you go to the, the wood hinge. When a party is going on, you go to the wood hinge. When you're celebrating the, the Midsummer's Eve, it's at Stonehenge, at, at wood hinge. But then at Stonehenge, you do things that mark death. So then your burials happen there. Thus, you remember we brought up the fact that in the Neolithic period, there were burials there uh, as well. It's a place that you mark the end of the year and the beginning of the new, which happens at the uh, winter solstice. So the concept of the changing seasons and the importance of God's rebirth or God's rebirth uh, becomes important to that. We don't 100% know that. Of course, Stonehenge has been muddled with so many stories and so many ideas and so much confusion. Uh, the Romano-British thought it was built by giants. Uh, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things and stories. And of course, our modern-day neo-pagan druids still use the site to kind of mark the solstice change. And the reality of it is, we don't even know if they're doing it right. We know that at one point, the stones fell down, they've been put up. Nobody's sure if they were ever put back up properly. So we don't even know if we've got what actually was Stonehenge in the shape it currently is now, or if this is just some guess of some Victorian person. And of course, that lends a whole passel of problems to it as well. So Stonehenge is a wonderful site. Unfortunately, it's a very confusing and befuddling site that is never really going to be solved unless we have a time machine can go back and ask our ancient ancestors, probably speaking in a proto-Welsh, what the heck they were doing. And we will never know.
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. So that's kind of the gist of Stonehenge. And the Amesbury Archer affiliation with him seems to be, a, it seems to show some sort of stratification, whether he was a king, whether he was just a specialist who was given a special reward. We don't know, but his burial is very unique and so unique that there's only one other I can use in that period of time, which has a similar nature to it in the Bronze Age. And that actually is in a place called Mould, which is in Flincher in North Wales uh, near Wrexham. This particular site, unfortunately, has the misfortune of being found in the Victorian, early Victorian period. Uh, the reason why I say that's a problem is because this is before archaeology is a stratified science. There is not a lot of effort made to um, indicate what the stratification it was found in, you know, the basics of archaeology where you test things around it to kind of get to know roughly the age of it, uh, carbon dating, all those kind of things. You can't do that with what they found. What did they find, you say? Well, they found what they call the mold cape. And it is made of gold. It is fantastic. It is an example of Bronze Age ingenuity and design. And I've left a link into pictures of it so you can see in the show notes, it is unbelievable. The in-depth quality of this is fascinating because you realize in this period, 
you know, you're talking about the hinterland when it comes to civilization. There is no such thing as civilization as we would even remotely call it, or even compared to, say, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Assyrians. There's just nothing even remotely like that here. And yet somehow, in some way, a lady was buried with a cape top made of gold. And it literally, it, it, it looks like a flaming shaw. And it's finely detailed with golden threading and stylistic decisions that just, I mean, it's a fantastic piece of ancient manipulation of metal. The fact that they did something that's on par with the pharaohs is an amazing achievement. And it is definitely that. So how was it found? Well, in 1833... Some workers, and nobody really knows for sure whether they were building a gravel, digging a gravel pit, or possibly quarrying some stone, they lifted a stone and found a burial site. And there's where the problem lies. The stone they lifted was obviously a cairn. It was obviously a megalith. They lifted it off of the, 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 the burial site. The, and we do know that she's a woman who was buried with that, was also buried with amber beads, and there is also some sort of cremation urns with her. A lot of that, unfortunately, got lost. The workers were told by their manager to toss the cape into a bush. I kid you not. Uh, and basically to give it to the manager at the end of the day, which he th they then did. They lost bits and pieces in the process because, of course, the cape wasn't in one piece. It was in three, plus little bits and pieces in the gravesite when he finally got it and then gave it to the British Museum. The British Museum comes along, they try and find other parts, they find some of it, but not all of it, and they bring it back. And of course, for the next, uh, let's say, 100 years almost, they don't actually know what they've got. They think it's all sorts of things. They think it's like a uh, something that was used as sort of a shield type thing, possibly like an armor, be it ceremonial or whatever, then it was like thought to be uh a something for a horse <laughs> and of course none of that turned out to be the case because at some point somebody in the early 1900s decided to sit down work through it and figure out exactly what it was and that's when they realized it was actually a cape actually that she was buried with a woman is a woman who obviously was a woman of power because yeah don't bury somebody with that amount of gold who isn't powerful she had a place of honor in society because one they buried her with honorable things too much like every other bronze age find that we have bronze age people are generally buried with objects and objects of importance typically to them we find all sorts of evidence even going into the iron age and into the roman period of people being buried with combs with brooches with all sorts of interesting things that were important to them probably in that life and these are just some of the things that we find. And the more opulent they are, obviously, the likelihood is the better off that person was. And when you were talking a gold cape of that magnificence, yeah, we're probably talking this person may have been a local king, effectively, or in this case, a queen, uh, or maybe a consort to somebody who was and was beloved enough that nobody basically went in and rifled through her tomb when they actually knew it was in there. Because later on, of course, people forget about it. It gets buried. You know, it's not like Egypt where you have these massive works of stone that sit above these 
opulent burials so there isn't an obvious place for people to go finding and digging and, and grave robbing although they do uh and so we got lucky in this case and and we do get lucky archaeologically when we find these things this is certainly nothing that normally gets found and in britain's case has never been found in the bronze age so it's an amazing discovery these two discoveries are probably the most interesting fascinating discoveries and of course one of them is in wales and they show that society is stratified that there is a level to it that there's luxury for some that there's leisure time for some and as we go into things next time because we're <laughs> going to continue to talk about all this one of the things that we have to talk about as we transition into the iron age is the idea that now we're starting to get to a point where myth is being made where ritual can be done because now you have a stratification well one of the things that we get when we have stratification is a priest class and priest classes need reasons to exist and one of the things that they do to exist is to have a mythology to create a reason for them to be as powerful as they are and we can debate and discuss what that means but the reality of it is is that priests are be it through belief or whatever are going to make sure that there's a significance to what they're doing and certainly we get this and it will transition into the iron age into what we call druids but at this point that's not what we're talking about we're talking about possibly shamanic types possibly people who are considered in the old sort of the old biblical term of a prophet there might be a high priest type pe person but we have to remember these groups are not stratified even though they're stratified they're not a civilization yet they're not in a situation where you have hundreds of thousands of people living in a community or even tens of thousands of peoples you're probably talking most communities are a village size or less um if they're that and typically they're made up of the local family the local community and they're very subsistence based they're very much built around the agricultural uh, ability to survive and even as we get to the point where there's trade obviously coming around which again in the bronze age we do get one of the other developments of the bronze age is, is these sh boats that are found or have been found which they are massive boats with 18 people rowing in them so effectively they're a lot like the viking ships in the size of them so you could transport major amounts of goods in these things especially when you have pottery because of course you can store it in the pottery uh, which is why when there are ships that go down and get sunk in the ancient times we do find pottery in them uh, very common things that are found in the roman era for example is to find massive urns with anything from olive oil to wine to precious goods to ballast to da, 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 and the list goes on and on and on this is the same sort of thing even in the bronze age there's people traveling from across the seas to each other be it from wales to ireland be it from scotland to the orkneys and the other islands around them be it from what we now call england to france what we would call france all of this is probably going on during this period of time and we're probably having an exchange of populations in that period of time 
And then the likelihood is, is that the languages are relatively close enough that you can make trades with people and understand them because you still don't have written languages. At this stage in this part of Europe, there just is nothing written down. So unfortunately, we're in other places like Syria and Assyria, like the, the Levant and in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, we have written notifications of things. We have tablets that give us all sorts of information. We have stories. We have all sorts of... We don't have any of that here still. And that won't exist until the Romans arrive, which is so disappointing in a way because it would be a wonderful thing to have that written record to be able to go to as a historian and say, oh, hey, we have this too. Because the reality of it is history and archaeology do actually... do and bounce off one another good and sometimes they bounce off one another badly and so it's good to have those comparisons because then you can say hey what is the middle ground on this what is really going on here when you don't have that you have to rely on archaeology that's what we're doing mostly in this bronze and iron age we're desperately reliant on on the archaeological evidence and what it gives us and thankfully we're getting good archaeological evidence at this point we're finding out about people. We're finding out about some of the basic things that people are doing. And more to the point, we're finding out the good side and the bad side of the Bronze Age for people. Because as much as it's good for some, it is definitely bad for others. And to put a point to this, when we talk about the Amesbury man, uh, one of the interesting parts of that particular individual is the fact that his knee bones are gone on the one knee so basically he probably walked with at least a limp for all of his for whenever this happened till the end of his life and it probably contributed to killing him so that's the good and the bad because of course we don't have what we would call medicine there's probably very little in the way of being able to heal people i'm sure they understood basic things uh there was a form of dentistry that was done although it sounds really scary in some places and there was some form of medicine that was done in this these time periods but nothing compared to anything that would be modern uh and obviously your life expectancy dropped considerably if you got wounded injured or broke a limb so even for the wealthy nothing was ever guaranteed in this era and of course as we go through this era we have these massive sea changes of people moving in and out because of various climactic problems and whenever that happens that has a tendency to blow your stratification quite quickly because once those confrontations happen people get killed and i'm sure that's what's going on in some of these cases especially when you see things like drastic environmental change where there's cold which means less growing season less ability to stay up in the mountains or in the hilly regions and thus there's a combination of people and every time you have too many people pushing it putting pressure then we have these combinations of problems which all explode at once then you build swords and you go to war and you take your land and you take your prisoners and make them slaves and put them to work on your lands and then you benefit from it until such time as somebody says hey that's enough of that and we go through this whole process again as we do in history and so I think that's where we're going to leave this for today. I will say that it's there's some fascinating stuff that are being put into the show notes. Please go have a look at some of the links. Definitely you will be curious to see the Mold Cape and the Amesbury Archer. I think those are fascinating to look at because they're both 
solid images. Uh, we also have maps on the site, on the Podbean site. So if you go to uh, welshhistorypodcast.podbean.com, you can actually go and you'll notice that I have links set out. I'm actually putting the resources into a separate folder as well as with each episode so that you can go through and have a look at them. Uh, I also have put up some of the maps that I've been finding around, things like links to them anyway, to the Ice Age, to the Neolithic, to the R Roman era. As I find them, as we get closer to talking about them, I'll put more and more up so you can kind of gives you an idea of what the territory might have looked like. Um, as well, I'll be putting up some personal photos I've taken. Uh, I actually went to the Welsh Museum of Life, which is kind of a, a natural, or not a natural museum, but a, a museum in the outdoors where you go and you can visit buildings. And they've got buildings from across Wales, which they brought into this museum area. And you can wander in them and, and kind of see what life was like at various points in the Welsh uh, lifestyle. One of the things that's fascinating is the actual uh, roundhouses. And as we enter the Iron Age, I'm going to put up a video link uh, probably on the Facebook page, and then I'll link it back to the Podbean page, which actually shows a, a, a me walking into one of these and how dark and how dank and how much smoke there would have been in that era. And it was interesting to kind of experience that. My voiceover, I admit, is terrible. Please bear with me on that. But I think it's fascinating to kind of have a look at. So I hope you'll have a look at it. I hope you're curious about it. It's fascinating stuff. And as I say always, if you have any concerns, comments, want to give me some sort of lecture about something, or if you have links to articles or things that you think would be interesting for me to look at, send them to the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at John DMP. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.